Good morning. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're joining us from YouTube and other places, go to officehours.global to find out more about what we do here. All, today, we're going to go old school and do two hours of Q&A, where normally we would take a second hour and focus on something that we want to spend more time on. Today, that's just going to be your questions. And speaking of questions, let's jump right in. Robert, what's our first question? Uh, thank you, Laura. Uh, we, we start here with David Brady from New York, New York. Saw this on the Companion Facebook user group and thought it was an excellent talking point. Four stream decks in a 2RU mount ships August 14th. Light up the sales and stagehand.hacks link provided. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, that, it looks amazing. So what this, what if you're listening to this, what you're, what you're actually, what they're showing is they figured out a way. They built out a uh, rack that you can take your stream decks and just insert them into a 19-inch rack. So this is it looks like a 2U rack um, that you can put stream decks into, and now you have basically a rack panel. That so for those of us who do a lot of production with some kind of, it can either be a rack in front of us or potentially what we call a turret. The turret is is this kind of piece that holds up to usually up to about six or eight U that's leaned back a little bit, and now you can put those stream deck controls right into the rack. Oh, it looks it looks good. I'm glad that, that David showed it to us. Uh, I'm definitely gonna watch that and possibly get one because it's uh, I have a lot of racks. <laughs> so so it, it, you know having those controls and something that's a little more controllable looks really cool. Next question from Simon Ray, Midlands, United Kingdom. What kit would you recommend for someone live streaming a tour around their local town to Zoom? What would make the shots more stable and make it easier for the broadcaster to listen and interact with Zoom? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, if, if you want to interact with Zoom, I, I, you, you might want to think, it depends on how much money you want to spend. You know, like there are lots of ways of, of doing this at different price points. The most straightforward way is probably going to be building a um, some kind of rig with your iPhone. Um, so, you know, an iPhone is going to give you a great camera. Uh, you can swap it back and forth. Uh, you can even do something like a ceremonic input so that you can get a good mic in there. Um, and then think about putting that on some kind of monopod. Um, the monopod is going to let you just set it down and stabilize it. Trying to add anything. If you want to put like mics in or something like that, um, then you're going to you, the, um, the stabilizer won't work anymore unless you get a higher end one. So, uh, so you really want to think about uh, just a monopod, potentially an iPhone. That's going to be the easiest way for you to interact. Now, there's the next step up from that is probably some version of a live view. So that's going to give you bonded cellular. We had live you on earlier this week, um, and that's going to give you. Now the interaction will be slower. So uh, Zoom is about uh, it's about a second and a half. I'm sorry, Zoom, Zoom is about 150 milliseconds of of latency. The live view is often about a second and a half, so it's about 10 times the latency of Zoom. Um, it's higher quality, but your ability to interact, depend, and, and you gotta, it depends on whether you, you get a live view that has a return, but that'd be another way to do it. And then other ways that we've done it in the past are you know, very low latency, uh, high-speed connections you know, to something. So you, it just depends on where you're, like Teradek and, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different ways of doing it. If you're going all over town and you want to show it, I, I would really try an iPhone and go out and jump into something like After Hours and wander around and just see how it works before it, before you do it. Tim? Yeah, I'll just add to what Alex said, you know, be creative as well, right? Look, <clears throat> look around your, uh, your environment, your hotel room or whatever, and look for boxes and blocks and, 
and uh, anything you can to fill in any gaps for gear you didn't bring. <clears throat> you know, back in the day, we didn't have gear for uh, for a lot of these things, or at least my uh, my budget didn't allow for it. And uh, you know, so it's always great to uh, you know to be able to think out of the box, pull in some lamps for lighting, and and uh, you know, use what you can. But uh, but it, I think one of Alex's key points was you know make sure everything's stable and secure and not not bouncing around and moving. So. Um, but, you know, be creative and uh, and see what's around you and, and see what you can utilize to, to supplement any gear you didn't bring. And, of course, take notes and use that for uh, for the next time so you know what gear that you're, you know, you're having to supplement so you can bring that gear with you next time. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Theater Chat touts that it is the ultimate text chat app designed specifically for live events and allows you to communicate with ease over your existing show network using well-implemented OSC specs. Discuss. And there is a link to the app. Alex? We'd have to see more. When you go to their website, there's no screen captures. <laughs> so you have to actually download the whole thing just to figure out what it's doing. Um, it could be a good app, but I, this is not the, probably the way that I would approach my marketing. Tim? You know, one, one thing that always intrigues me about uh, a text app, text chat apps for production purposes is accessibility, right? We know some of the, one of the things we've been covering lately on Saturdays is accessibility and and text-based apps <clears throat> can work for uh, people with low or no hearing, the deaf, deaf and hard of hearing. And, uh, you know, the app can also be made accessible for blind and low vision through screen readers and things like that. So, uh, you know, it definitely brings uh brings a wider audience to your production crew. So uh, so I'm always intrigued by that. I'm going to download this app and and uh, play with it with some of the accessibility tools and and see how it does there but but I'm always intrigued at using text for back-end communication. Absolutely. Next question from Brandon Boutron, Indianapolis, Indiana, from the <clears throat> Crime Blotter here. Police believe two people found an unattended pallet jack and stole $300,000 worth of gaming cards the day before Gen Con at the Indiana Convention Center. In terms of venue security, what do you do to protect your equipment while loading in? Alex, you've got quite a bit of experience with this. Yeah, don't leave it unattended. <laughs> I'm sorry, but but I mean, if I had three hundred thousand dollars of of, uh, of gaming cards, I probably wouldn't leave them on a pallet. Like you know, you know that that's a um, you know, it, you have to always assume that you're under that that you you can't leave things unattended. Um, the other thing is is that you you know, especially if something has a is a high value target, you're not going to leave it there. Um, when we're moving things, we have people moving them. Even if we have someone at the venue moving our stuff, usually we have one of our people that is a making sure it ends up in the right room, and b making sure that nothing it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, we keep our cases numbered, so we make sure that we didn't leave one behind. Um, we, you know, you come in and large the larger the case. So when you get started, when, when I got started, the cases, you know, we put stuff into milk cartons and like you know those those or those you know the little square ones and and we put them onto carts and we just move move them over to Moscone because we were a block away at some point we got to a point where we were pulling a truck in 
and rolling them out on their own wheels um, as, as road cases. And in between, we, we had uh, Pelican cases and so on and so forth. But what we try to do is not have anything outside those cases. You know, so, you know, other than someone's backpack, we want everything in a Pelican case or a, or a, a thing. And then we want to keep someone with those things. Um, and you just have to be careful with it. And then, you know, once you're there, a lot of times we set up cameras and, and you know, we use, I mean, even just like a, a bunch of nests pointed at each other in different places. So it'd be very hard for you to get to our space without us seeing you. Um, so those are the kind of things we, we, we managed overnight. But on a load in, if you've got a high value and, and what might happen is, is you get there, you load it off the dock, they set it down somewhere. Um, so that there's some things you can't control if, if it has to be a scheduled input. So what happens with convention centers is you usually go to a holding dock or holding parking area you brought in one at a time, Teamsters take everything off your, um, off all the pallets off your truck. So the only place I can see that this might have been a problem is they got, it got taken off of the truck and then just set somewhere and someone knew what it was. Um, the other thing that we do, we are careful with is not to make, not to put big things on the outside about what's in it. <laughs> like, so don't say, don't, you know, like I know a lot of people love to put their Sony camera or this and rental companies always want to have what's in it outside of the case. We try to have everything just have numbers, you know, and if we, if we write on what's in it, it's usually some kind of internal code. It's not cameras, switcher, mixer, that kind of thing. That just makes it a target. Tim, anything to add? Yeah. Um, you know, of course, Eric, uh, Alex has got a lot of experience in, uh, in loading these big shows in and out. And, um, you know, I agree to not put what's on the box. Uh, we've, we've had that issue before where it's just, I think you add a little extra, uh, temptation and awareness to, uh, you know, to people that might, uh, might be looking to do something devious and, um, and use trusted folks. So sometimes you hire someone local to, uh, you know, to be your, um, your, attendant for that gear. And if it's someone you don't know, um, you know, that may, uh, may not work in your favor. Next question. From John Fisher, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma is searching for a desktop HDMI switcher. If it supports the HDMI version I need, are they all basically the same? Is there anything I should look to avoid? Alex? Yeah, it, the HDMI switchers are, are actually pretty quirky. Um, so if you get ones that are little, the little $40, $50 ones, you oftentimes are going to find that it clicks when it goes in and you'll see the, the so if that doesn't bother you, then, then that's fine. But just know that what you're looking for are, are ones that are going to seamlessly switch um, between those and having those frame correctors in it usually makes them more expensive. Um, the least expensive, high quality HDMI switcher that I've used is an ATEM Mini, which you can buy used on eBay for a hundred bucks or a hundred dollars. But those are the, you know, those are the kind of the, the, um, uh, these, you know, four inputs, you can crossfade between them. You can switch between them. They're not very big. I know that you're, you may be looking for something smaller, but uh, as you go below, just be careful of buying it, buying it from somewhere you can return it because what you're going to do is you're going to plug two HDMIs in, you'll hit the little button on the front. It'll go back and forth to see what it does to your TV, um, and, or, or your signal. And so that's the thing you want to pay attention to as you, um, as you, as you go through it. But again, I would, if I, if I needed it and I had the space, I'd probably just use it. Hey, Tim. Next question. 
Simon Ray from Midlands, United Kingdom has another question going mobile. The M1 Mac Mini uses very little power. What device would you recommend to power one off grid for a few hours while still being portable enough to carry around, perhaps in a backpack? Alex? Yeah, there's very, uh, there's a lot of battery packs. So you're not, you're probably moving past the, the, you know, like a Jackery in the United States is something that I'd probably look at. And they make a 300 and other, other, they have like all kinds of sizes. If I was determined, I could probably put the Jackery that I have with me. It's, it's about, you know, you know, that kind of size. If I was determined, I could probably put it in a backpack. I might get a little tired after a while, but it's, it's a pretty big battery and it would last, it would definitely last. But that's, once you start talking about backpack, you're also talking about the Mac Mini. Where are you putting that? You may be better off at that point thinking about a laptop. I mean, you know, if you're going to do it, if, but if it, but if you're going to do a Mac Mini and you're going to set it on something that you might move around behind you or with you, then um, you know, getting one of these these kind of camping battery and they come in very very small that you could definitely put in a backpack all the way up to. Uh, you know, the, the Mac Mini would probably last all day. So it's just a matter of, of looking at what, what the draw is. But Jackery is the one that I have, um, but there's a lot of different versions of these. Alex, isn't Anchor one of the other batteries that, that a lot of people use yeah, in the smaller anchors, sides? Anchors are used a lot. I wouldn't necessarily, they don't usually have the, the, the horsepower to power a something plugged in. You got to get it to, the problem with the Mac Mini is it's not just a USB-C. I wish it was. It oh. is a, you know, it's a figure eight, you know, um, a, a figure eight house current. So it's got its own power supply. So you have to get that that voltage. That's why you take one of these kind of camping batteries because they have a, um, they have an Edison on them and that you can plug in. And so uh, that would be more challenging is to get, you know, get, I've never thought about getting a USB-C to, to Edison connection, but, but um, you, you know, but the, and I've, you be careful with the less expensive anchors too. I recently bought a couple that don't work the way I expect them to. So it's, it's, it's after years of using them, I'm not, I'm not as excited. Okay, thank you. Next mm -hmm. question. From Bobby Flaherty, Florida. Are there any advantages or disadvantages to having an external 10 terabyte hard drive formatted at XFAT? John? XFAT, XFAT was specifically designed for external drives like this. It's got a huge partition space and it's cross-platform. So it's a fine choice for an external uh, hard drive. Next question. Tulak Lopez Waterman from an undisclosed location traveling in the U.S. A series on Netflix called The Lincoln Lawyer uses a lot of Brill with Lens focus shift. Any thoughts? on this if it is an optical or CGI. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so um, I, I don't, uh, I don't I haven't seen that, so I can't tell you for sure. It's pretty hard to do a tilt shift. I mean, you know, they might be able to figure out a way to, they, maybe they figured out a technique to do the, the tilt shift um, without doing it in camera. It is hard to do that, you know, because you're talking about, you know, bokehs and angles and stuff like that for a regular show i probably wouldn't do it that that very often i'd try to figure out how to shoot it that way um, but then that kind of that also has its, its challenges because you've kind of now committed to it um so um but i would say it's, it's a little bit of a challenge to do that but it, it'll be interesting to see you know whether they uh um i'll, I'll take a look at it yeah it's, it's 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 an interesting um puzzle there but it'll be it would be a very difficult thing to do in uh uh, CG. 
Just a quick reminder that this show will only go as long as the producers send us questions to have a show. So with that, next question. Next, uh, here we are with Douglas Carmichael. What does the panel think of the use of AI-assisted audio mixing on sports events? The shape of things to come and a sportsvideo.org link is provided. Alex? Yeah, I think that um, it it could work. I mean, for sim- the, the, the question is at what level? So what level is go- is that going to be? So is it going to be something that uh, you're trying to do at a professional level and there's a lot of people watching, you want people doing that. If you want to have something that is better, you know, like you don't, you don't have any talent to any skilled people to do the mix, the AI may do better if you keep it simple. So I don't think that you necessarily couldn't do it, um, but it just depends on how many people are watching and how important that stream is. Um, but there's this kind of, I think that we're going to see with AI is there's the situation where it is, um, uh, that AI um, will do better than many average or below humans in the not too distant future in many areas, including ours. And so the the issue is is that you go well, you know, it, it doesn't. It's not as good as what we use for TV, but there's a, a lot of things that aren't on TV <laughs> that need to still be mixed and still need, need to still have camera ops and so on and so forth. And so I think that you're going to see that lower level stuff. Um, fall away to AI. The, the challenge that we keep on bringing up here is if you do that, where do you get the next generation of experts if they don't get to put thousands of hours into mediocre work, you know, and, 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 and improve themselves. And so I think that the way we educate how people do things, the reaction is probably that people end up having to stay in some kind of trade, you know, schools and so on and so forth much longer and, and exit school at a much higher level of expertise. Right now, we kind of get students from colleges that I guess they took some courses and they're not, they don't actually are, are, they're probably, in my opinion, usually not as good as the people that we get without going to school for this um, when we when we hire them for our production. Um, you know, so, and then we train them up by having them do work. The problem is if there's nothing, no work to do because we can't afford, you know, we have AI to do that. Um, then it becomes challenging. Like, so now you have to have schools that actually can teach these students how to, how to execute at an expert level. Um, and that hasn't have school hasn't had, no schools have had to really do that. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, medical, medical school. Yes. Because if you screw up, you die. Uh, you know, lawyers. Yes. Well, maybe, um, anyway, so, so the, um, uh, and I come from a family of them. So anyway, so, but the point is, is that there are areas like a doctor where if you look at how much training doctors go through, that's because it's life or death, you know, and they have to come out of school knowing what they, knowing how to do this. I think that while our work is not definitely not life and death, you're going to probably, what you're going to see in many, many trades and many, many jobs is that people have to stay in school much longer to be able to compete with AI because they can't learn on the job. They have to, they have to learn somewhere else um, and, uh, and, to, to, and to learn how to be effective. And that's going to change a lot of things on our end. And, and also just there'll be a lot of people that don't make it through that. And then what do we do? So, so that's the, so there's a lot of challenges right now when it comes to, you know, AI. Robert. Well, and on the video end in the sports area at some of the high end sporting events, uh, the EVS, uh, platform that they use to use a uh, record and playback ha- uses AI to do super slow mo, which is pretty cool. So that there's only so many um, 
camera angles that can use the super slow-mo because it's kind of hardware governed and you only have so many uh, cameras you can use. So if you want to use some of the other cameras and use them as super slow-mo, they clip, take, they clip it off and send it over the internet and AI interpolates the in-between flame frames to make the super slow-mo send it back to the playback operator and it's on, and it's on the air. So that may be a preview to come of a super slow-mo being able to be done with AI. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. If you have an iPhone 8 or 10 or earlier, it might be time for an upgrade. Apple is not supporting. Um, Apple will not support the upcoming iOS 17 update. Does this impact you? Go ahead, Alex. If I have an earlier phone, I'm probably not expecting to do any hard work. <laughs> so I don't expect it to, to run the, the next operating system. So I, I think that I would... Uh, not expect I wouldn't worry about it I mean I have an iPhone 8 and I use it as a clock you know so I, I don't I don't know if uh, uh, I don't think that this would impact me and I probably wouldn't I wouldn't update even something like a 10 like I would just leave it where it's at so I, I think it's fine next question Mark Steele from Orlando Florida I'm enjoying using the new office hour radio app and haven't had any problems. Have you had any feedback from others uh, that are having any issues? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, and, and no, <laughs> it, it seems to be working. I've been using it for quite some time. So, um, so uh, Wansu Robles uh, wrote, wrote this app, and uh, if you go to our Discord, you can see a place where you can download it. It's in the Alex announcements. There's a link for the um, for the app. It is uh, iPhone only. I don't know if we're going to spend the time. You know, it's just right now. It's just us just trying to solve that problem. And we'll somewhere in the future, if it gets really popular, we'll probably look at an Android version. But um, but we have an iOS version that's now available, and it, it is a true app. So you're going to download it. The audio is much more stable. If there's something going wrong with the audio on that app, it means that on our streaming side, there's something going wrong as opposed to before. And, and the nice thing is it plays in the background. So that's what you weren't sure was going to happen when you're on the web version of Makana. You're not sure if it's going to happen, but it, but now the, the app will get, will play in the background. It also launches Makana. So the way I get into Makana when I'm not on the show and I just want to view it or, or, uh, you know, in the, in the morning before, I get on the panel, usually I get up and I just open up that app and hit launch Makana, jump into it, and that's that's where I ask my questions. Or or look at everybody else's questions, vote on those questions. All that stuff is there in the app. So it's a it's really a, the most convenient way to get into the QA uh, portion of the of the show. Tim, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I just since uh uh, I'm a, a a new user of that since I saw it posted the other day, just providing some live feedback that I, you know, I love that I can click in and and uh, listen to the show while I'm on the move or doing other things or, you know, in the car or something like that. So, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a popular uh, resource and I love the features. Um, I haven't even used it enough to see what Alex just talked about, you know, interacting with Makana on the app, but I just uh, clicked it on, listened to the show while I was doing some other activities and it was really handy. I, you know, I, I actually think it's going to be the number one way people uh, enjoy the show is going to be through that app. So it's, uh, you know, I'm pretty, pretty excited about it. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas again. The LK99 room temperature superconducting discovery could be the holy grail science and is lighting up Twitter and now called X. Science.org uh, link provided. 
Go ahead, John. When the aliens came down and gave us LK99, the blockchain and AI, no, not really. There's a great article in Nature, boy, tough audience. There's a great article in Nature published yesterday, Paul, that goes over um, all of the ins and outs of, of LK99 and the uh, difficulty of, of replicating the experiment. So it would be great if it happens. Uh, I'm skeptical. Yeah. Next question. Jack Rupel for Breckenridge, Colorado. Can Vision Pro icons be built in Resolve Studio, stereo video composited with Fusion? Interest in newsreel editing. Alex? Uh, it should be able to. I mean, right now, delivering that f f footage to the Vision uh, is, is still... There's still some pieces that need to be finished. So there's a new HEVC MV that is the way that you're going to deliver two eyes for stereo. Um, this is an, an, a, a new format. Um, and basically, you, you pick an eye that's dominant. So it's sending out a mono format as well as a delta that is the, the stereo pair. Um, and the, the, that format is not new. It's been around, but it hasn't been really implemented. I think it's been around since 2015, um, but it hasn't been really implemented. Um, so um, there's a lot of tools that we need to make that actually happen. Um, but I do think that you can potentially um, also just send out a stereo pair. And so that would allow you to build those any kind of stereo graphics that you want. Next question. The traveling to Alok Lopez Waterman has wants to know if we can get an update on SIGGRAPH. Alex? Well, SIGGRAPH hasn't started yet. I'm down here. I came down uh, uh, on uh, Thursday and then yesterday uh, spent a day at what was called the Production Summit. So the Production Summit uh, is, is, is a fairly new get-together that happens right before SIGGRAPH. And, um, you know, I think there's, there was a lot of partners there, Microsoft and AMD and Blackmagic and um, many, many others are all, um, you know, we're all there. Uh, Paul DeBevic, who, you know, is one of the, you know, one of the folks that really helped start uh, photogrammetry is, and I also saw Greg Downing, who's the other one of the folks that really helped start this up. Um, we're both there. Paul was led a panel and then also talked about magenta green um, green screen or magenta green screen, which was a really fascinating uh, talk. It's not designed for production yet. It's just R and D. Now Paul is part of kind of the R and D group at uh, Netflix, and uh, he they're using they're basically taking the green out of the lighting for the care for the people in the foreground and then they're basic what that does is it makes their key way better now they're also slightly magenta um, and then they use they're using uh, machine learning to basically pull that green pull out the magenta so they uh, in ai so they're taking ai and, and machine learning they're basically to they look at them in a in a regular under regular white light it it you know, learns from that. And then when, it, and then it, then they use that to recolor them. So instead of using AI to take the edge out, which is really hard, they found that just coloring, you know, de, you know, getting their color back was actually not hard uh, or not that not as hard. So they're doing this and it's a, it was a fascinating process there. The other big thing that was uh, really popular there, there um, uh, were nerfs, neural radiance fields. And, um, and so these are, these are a new way of looking at instead of photogrammetry where you're building geometry and, and you're, and you have textures and everything else, um, nerfs are able to display that 3d information and the parallax and everything else. But 
you can't change the textures. You can't change the models. It's kind of, it, it knows, you know, it, it can just reproduce what you, what you're able to, what you have. Now the downside of that is it's not very flexible. The upside of it is it takes a lot less to do it. So all the work that we do for, for photogrammetry and all the work that we do to, to build models, if you, they were showing um, people using Insta 360s to shoot images along a, you know, down a path and um in in spheres and then be able to generate from the just those spheres be able to generate a nerf of this whole location you can kind of move around and, and, and walk around in from that point of view so um i think for the place where it makes sense you want to give a tour of a house that you want to try to sell nerfs could be really useful because you don't need all that geometry you just need them to see what the place looks like you know you for previs for those kinds of things for actual production probably a little ways away. I mean, they have to figure out a couple more things before it's going to be useful for us to use in production. But for capturing, and the great thing is, is what, what we do to get photogrammetry is also um, uh, the same, relatively same technique as, as NERFs. And so you can get all that data and have it if you needed it, but you can convert it to NERFs, which is a, a much lighter to move around. Yeah, and uh, following up on that, we will be live from Office Hours is be live from SafeGraph Tuesday from four to six Pacific time and Wednesday from one to three Pacific. So um, we're excited. Um, we're gonna, gonna have a team on the ground and uh, should be a good. Uh, I know the the back the crew has been working really really hard to uh, produce a great show. So um, join us and check that out. Next question. From Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What are the advantages of encoding WebM video format for YouTube as the intended destination? It seems that this is the final rendering YouTube to most video uploads. Oh, wow. Alex? Yeah, I, I don't know of anybody rendering WebM to to, send, to upload to YouTube. I mean, it might happen. I, I guess people do it, but everyone that I know is usually upload, doing an H.264 and then up, uploading it or even ProRes, depending on what they want to do, if they want to let YouTube do all the work. While YouTube does make that the, the final delivery, I, again, I've not... Uh, I've not seen anybody use that as a as a mezzanine structure to, to upload to YouTube. I, I don't think I would... I don't, I may be wrong, but I don't understand why you, why you would do that compression to upload to YouTube when you can do H.264. Tim, you want to weigh in? Yeah, my my workflow is a little bit slower uh, paced than than a lot of uh, influencers. You know, I upload a video maybe every every week or two, or or sometimes less than that even. Um, so I tend to upload ProRes, so I get that kind of full. Uh, quality up front and then let YouTube do its work on the back end instead of, uh, you know, instead of me doing that. Plus, YouTube is almost always going to recompress whatever you send up. So if you, uh, you know, send compressed footage, they're going to recompress it. Um, so, you know, could could get some artifacting there. Next question. From Daniel Ferguson, Thousand Oaks, California. In the world of Dante Audio and X32 mixers, is the old analog mixer format officially irrelevant, like my Mackie 1604 VLZ mixer? Go ahead, John. I have the baby brother of the Mackie. I have the 1202, I think, and, and I also have the X32 with Dante in it. The Mackies are so noisy compared to 
anything on Dante or or the X32. It's just crazy if you put them side by side. The old Mackies are great for like a, a live performance in a bar. That's a perfect example of a great place for a Mackie mixer. Other than that, I would never use it in a studio. Go ahead, Alex. Alex, we can't hear you. You know, I I, I bought a mute mute a mute switch, um, and it made too much noise. So I said, it clicks when I close it because I, I wanted it to be, you know, I, so anyway, so yes, sorry, I'm on the road. Um, anyway, so the, uh, um, the, the, the Mackie's got a lot more self noise than a typical digital mixer. Uh, you're going to be limited in routing. So, you know, you're probably better off with an XR12 or an XR18, um, just a little box that's going to do those things for you. Um, it is simple, but also what we found was I bought a bunch of these. I mean, I, I, I think I well, actually on the 1204s, um, and the, the, we had like 12 of them cause we thought, oh, it'll be easier for everybody to use, but it turned out to be harder for everyone to use because they were overmodulating. They were doing all kinds of other things. There's all kinds of things that, that were there. It was actually harder for them to understand. Um, so we just moved to digital. And so I, I, some people really, some people really like them cause they say that they're simple, but I find it harder to get a good, uh, actually harder to get a good sound out of it. Next question. From Talag Lopez Waterman traveling, how do you monetize a podcast? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so the um, uh, there's a lot of different ways to monetize a podcast. Uh, one way to do it is to do it as a service for somebody else, which I've done a lot of. Uh, so, so I'm not making money on the podcast, and they're using it as marketing. So a lot of companies that do uh, podcast may be there to build their brand. It might be someone to build their personal brand. So that in that case, you're making indirect revenue because you're doing something uh, over here, which is to connect with folks. But you're, you know, a certain very tiny percentage of them may hire you to do something or may buy your product. Products are another way that people make money with podcasts where they're, they have a product that everyone knows that they're selling. Um, and that might be, you know, some kind of commercial product that might be a service that might be, um, t-shirts. It could be anything. Um, and they, uh, so that is another way for them to make money indirectly from the listenership. Uh, then you have advertising. Advertising, of course, is people just saying brought to you by or someone doing a live read. Um, and that depends on the, on the vertical of your, um, of your podcast to how much you can charge. So usually we think about the cost per thousand. Um, so, um, so basically if you are a very wide podcast, your cost per thousand is, is typically in the three, two, three, four dollar range. So for every thousand people that are going to listen to this, you might make two or three, two or three dollars. Uh, YouTube is kind of in that, in that realm oftentimes. As you go vertical, I know some podcasts that can charge up to $200 per thousand. And that's because they're in a highly vertical, expensive market that is hard to reach. So if they prove they've got 10,000 people or 20,000 people, they don't need to get to 100. They don't need to get to a million. But 10,000 people might generate them $2,000 a show um, because of that that highly vertical nature. So um, so advertising is another way to do it. Membership is another way. So people, people could either subscribe in something like Apple Podcasts or in a variety of other you know, other ways to do it. Um, and, uh, so, or you could have your own separate membership that you build and discord and those kind of things. So those are the various ways that I've seen people, um, uh, monetize their podcasts. Next question. And we can't hear you. 
Robert. Robert, we can't hear you. Robert is now heard. Welcome back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Paul Waz from Austin, Texas, uh, for the non-lip reading audience, is writing, as much as the U.S. United States swelters under record heat, Amazon drivers and warehouse workers have gone on strike in part to protest working conditions that can exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit. What other ways has the heat impacted our tech economy? Alex? I mean, it, it's only the beginning of this impact. Of course, the, the heat is going to mean that it's going to be much drier. In the, in the, I'm in Northern California, so I expect a very heavy um, fire season. So we're, we already start to see some fires occurring, um, but that's going to be something, and that can affect a lot of other things there. Of course, you pay a lot more attention to, you know, the cost of doing business in a lot of places is, start, is going to become more intense. Um, as the air conditioning costs and everything else starts to go up. Um, you're going to see the other challenge that we get into in California is that our, our electrical grid, I know it's a big, big state, but our electrical grid is very fragile in California. Um, and so the result is that um, we get into a situation where we have so much, uh, um, we have so much solar in, in California that we get into a situation where it's really, when it, in the really hot days of August and September, we can get into a situation in the evening or late afternoon where there's not enough solar power to keep the grid up. So, so what ends up happening is, is we lose power at four o'clock or five o'clock for a couple hours until people turn their air conditioners off. <laughs> so, and if it stays, so, so there's a, you know, there's really these chain reactions that we're not really built for. Um, so I think that, you know, some, we're going to, we potentially can see some power, um, issues uh, a lot of us especially in these days make sure that we have when we do major events we're doing we have generators we have a lot of other things that, that we're ready to, to not depend on uh, our power grid so um so anyway so that's that's the those are i think power um additional costs and obviously workers in a in an uh, unforgiving situation next question from Douglas Carmichael, is the Yamaha DM3 the Mackie 1604 of the digital era? Go ahead, Alex. I'd be tempted to say the X32. <laughs> it's more more of that that kind of generalized. And really, the Mac. Mac I, what was the cost of the Mac, Mackie 1604? What What is the uh, trying to think of the? Is I don't remember how expensive it was or how much it is now. It was like six hundred bucks, something like that. Yeah, so I would say that at that price point, I'd be more, I'd be more tempted to say the XR18 is probably uh, closer to the same, it's close to the same price point as I think most of the features, uh, just a different form factor. Next question. From Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota, is there a QR code on the office hours site or after hours for donations? I've seen artists and nonprofits use them. Are they difficult to set one up? Go ahead, Alex. We're testing the donate button. <laughs> so we have one um, and we'll probably be more open to it um, and show it. We've been kind of testing to make sure it works. Some of you have graciously given us a little bit of money. We appreciate that. Um, and so uh, so you can donate. Uh, if you go to the about section in our website at the bottom, there'll be a button that says, I think, sign up. And there's another button that says donate. Um, that button's there. We'll make it more. We're kind of slowly making that available out there. So uh, we don't have a QR code yet, uh, but but we do have a place to do that if, if uh, people do. We want to see how many. See, we haven't said anything until now. Want to see who 
who found it without saying anything. There was a little bit of some market research there. So, um, but we're going to, we'll probably talk about that a little bit more in the future. Go ahead, Robert. Uh, what would be a good backend to use that, like Stripe or what sort of payment system would you be you know, using there's a, for that? We're using a donate, I think it's called... Uh, Donor box, I think, is what we have. I have to admit, I'm not managing it directly, but it's there's a there's a there's a an organization that manages just donations for 501c3s, and that is the that, that manages e-commerce on your website to do that to make sure that it's kind of they're managing it in the way that needs to be managed. And so, I I think it's donor box, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Go ahead, Tim. And maybe a little bit of a question to add on to that. Um, well, I, I, you just mentioned that uh, that Office Hours is a 501c3, right? Yep. So it's a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of companies offer uh, matches for donations to nonprofit organizations. So, so if you're going to slide a little bit into Office Hours, see if your company matches that. And well, and, and and there's is there and, and there's are there some there's some organizations that are there some com, um, systems that work directly with companies. Do, do you know which ones do that make that possible? The uh, the first name that comes top of mind is called Benevity. Uh, mm -hmm. I know there's a few of those organizations, and I think most companies use a third party to manage that, right? So I don't think the company does it directly. Uh, they partner with a group like that. Right. So, so what happens is, is that, that if we build a relationship with Benevity, then it's easy for the corporations that do matching, you know, donations to, they use the Benevity internally or the people, the individuals would use that, right? To, right. to give right. money direct to us. Yeah. We'll do more research on that. <laughs> Just a reminder, our producers can submit questions and vote on the questions that they want us to talk about first at any time. Next question. From Tulag Lopez Waterman, has anyone tried the new HDMI input feature on iPadOS 17 beta? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I have. Um, and so with some of my webcams, it's worked perfectly. It just, as soon as it pops in, it goes, oh, that's your camera. Like I, I didn't have to choose it. I didn't have to look at it. It just popped up. Um, and so that was successful. I have not been able to get it to work with the Link 360 or my ATEM. I thought that that would be, I thought the ATEM, I, someone had said that they got the ATEM working because uh, it shouldn't just look like a webcam, but I was not successful at doing that yet with the iPad. But definitely some run of the mill, you know, 4K, uh, webcams or whatever, it just popped right on. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In the age of virtual presence, what new habits and norms associated with interacting people have been modified or changed? What might be the positive or negative effects from this new culture in the future? Go ahead, Alex. You know, I think that there's there's definitely a uh, informality. I was just at an event with lots, hundreds of people yesterday, and it, there is an informality where there. I think people talk about um, they talk about that kind of bouncing around thing. But I spent the whole day like someone going, "Oh, you should talk to this person. You should talk to this person. You should talk to this person." And I I realized, and I got. I got a lot done and met a lot of people very, very quickly um, by being there. So I do see that there's a certain value in being in person. Um, I think that it, it is, uh, it's still like I had to come down. <laughs> I had to do this. And I, and I will admit, and this is where, this is what events are grappling with. If this, if the event that I went to yesterday had been available online, I probably wouldn't come. 
Like I, I would have just, you know, um, I probably would have stayed up now. It would have been worth it because I got to play. There's a big expo, but I, I realized that expos at these events are actually going to become more and more important because a lot of us, you know, most of what we do is go to the expos. You have to have things that you want to play with. If you're just there for the, the, the actual content of the, because when you're sitting in a, I have to admit, when I was sitting in a in a in a, in a session, I was like, I, I could have done this at home. <laughs> like I could have, you know, like I could have, especially when there's not much Q and A. I just go, well, I could have done. There was some Q and A, but there wasn't as as much as I'm used to here. Um, and uh, but I there was definitely a lot of like, if people are just sitting sitting around talking, I'd rather them do that through Zoom. You know, like I don't need, I don't, you know, in the comfort of their own home, and I, you know, it's so much lifting to bring them into a room. Um, and so, uh, but I. Um, but what I did enjoy is hanging out with people, talking to people, uh, playing with new equipment, um, you know, like, you know, th that kind of stuff I think was very interesting. So I do think that we're going to end up where the expos and the things that you want to play with and, and, and you pay more attention to how people socialize and how they look at things as opposed to the actual sessions, because the sessions I think you could do year round over Zoom and then, and then actually come for Q and A's and come to talk about it and come to do those things, but not necessarily um, make that the core of, uh, of an event. Yeah, I think it's interesting in education after the pandemic, we figured out how to do things like how to have an anatomy lab, how to have a chemistry lab safely, virtually. And uh, it's kind of, to your point, Alex, made those expo things so much more important in the Q&A and interaction part of it. Next question. From Dot Epp in Austin, Texas, the Writers Guild of America, WGA, met yesterday with representatives of the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers. Are we getting close? And what is their stance on AI? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I don't think we're getting any closer. <laughs> I just don't, I don't think that that's, so um, I, I, obviously they, they, writers want to use AI as a, as a, um, brainstorming tool, but they don't want producers to use it to replace them. So it's a very tricky little business that they're asking for there. Um, but I don't, they started meeting. I think that um, we're probably still pretty far away. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. Has anyone had success using open core legacy patcher to get old Macs to run newer Mac OS ES like Big Sur or Sonoma? Go ahead, Alex. I know people who are doing this and they've said that it was successful. I would never do this. <laughs> like, it just seems like it would be so much work uh, for something that uh, uh, you're not going to get much more performance out of it. Um, I'd rather just buy a base level Mac Mini, which is probably going to be faster than whatever you're putting this on. Next question. Next. Here we are with Douglas Carmichael. Zoom is now requiring employees who live within 50 miles of a Zoom office to come into the office at least two days a week. Considering Zoom has been driving the remote first era, do you think this is a broader sign of a shift back to normal? Go ahead, Alex. Remember, it's only the requiring employees that live within 50 miles of, a, of an office. It's not requiring employees to come back. Zoom has probably got some of the most progressive uh, solutions to this. And I think that it's not really going back to normal. It's not going to go back to normal. Um, what's going to happen is, is that the tools are going to keep on getting better to be remote. And people are going to do more and more of that type of remote work. 
And as those tools get better, um, basically startups and mid-sized companies that are not typically competitive with corporate are going to use their ability to do this to peel off the best employees out of those corporations. And so, so I think that you're not going to see um, it going backward. It, it, it'll feel like it's going back because the corporations are going to try to pull people back. They're trying to do that right now. But what you constantly are seeing are some of the best employees. I know employees that are happy with their job, happy with how much they're getting paid, um, and they really love what they do. And but but where they live after COVID has become more important. And they're actually thinking about leaving the company they're with because of having to go back to the office. And that should terrify companies that someone can be happy with their their coworkers, happy with their pay, happy with their job. And because you're turning this one dial, they're willing to leave. Um, that is a that's a that's that's a pretty high uh, indicator that something has got to change because those many of those employees are going to be some of your best employees. Um, and so they're, they're more mobile and they're, they're going to continue to move. So it's not that the companies are going to go under tomorrow. It's not that no one's going to show up. It's this kind of slow drawdown of, of talent where they just slowly move to the things that are more flexible because these tools to make us, to make these companies more flexible were accelerated dramatically during the, um, you know, during the pandemic. And so it's not something that you're going to see in the next year or two. It's something you're going to see over the next decade. You're going to see many companies become much more flexible. Next question. From Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada. The production summit mentioned earlier showed the Netflix magenta compositing experiment. Is this difficult for performers to work in? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about it before. So you put this, now number one is that color is not as, it's not this really, really bright saturated magenta. It's just a little magenta. But they did talk about the, the concern that, that actors might not like to look at that the whole time. Um, the what they one of the things they've been doing is is doing this idea of if you run it where it's turning on and off, so it's actually turning that channel back on at a cadence that it looks normal to the actors and it has to be about 144 frames a second, but it looks normal to the actors, but the um, camera can still see has has um, the camera is is synced to that, so the the camera opens and shuts and gets its frame before the actors see the normal frame. And if it's, it's a high enough frame rate, it doesn't look like it's flickering. And they simply just get to see, uh, it looks normal to them, but the camera's getting what it needs. It's a very interesting uh, puzzle that they're still working on. Again, not used in production. They're just simply figuring this out. And what they're really working on is how to normalize. They're doing all of this machine learning and all the AI to really figure out how you know, what, are the, what is the nature of compositing so that uh, somewhere in the future we don't have to do all these tools. So this is really just an R&D project at the moment. Um, and, uh, but, but we should keep our eye on it. It's a really interesting thought process. Next question. My question following up to Josh's questions earlier about YouTube transcoding and kind of along the lines of the concept of if you, in post, if you start at a higher format, and when you transcodes down, it should be better. So would using a higher resolution format uploading to YouTube help with the YouTube transcoding quality? Go ahead, Alex. Sometimes. So one of the things that we found was that, um, now you, you know, you could put up an 8K file or whatever, and it'll just make an 8K version of it. But one of the things that we found is that sometimes if you compress a higher quality, a high, very high quality H.264, we actually found that that might that sometimes looks better than a ProRes file, 
And we think that it's because we're, we're doing a quantization pass uh, that we've tuned to that content. And YouTube, it gives YouTube a little bit of a cheat sheet of where to go. Whereas ProRes is going into a generalized compression that YouTube does for everything. And it sometimes we found in certain er in certain places that the RH264 looked better than the ProRes file. But you definitely want to upload in the highest resolution you produced it in. So if it's 8K, you can put it in uh, 4K, definitely. Um, so, and that is definitely going to look better on YouTube. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, you know, if you're if you have the luxury of being able to test your workflow, um, you know, certainly try these things, right? Alex just mentioned that they've kind of tuned their system a little bit, and uh, you know, it, it, it's great if you have the option to, <clears throat> up, you know, take find a video that that's uh, representative of the work you're going to do, and you know, put out a ProRes and H.264 and and uh, you know, 4K, 1080, you know, all the different things and just get those up on YouTube and, and see how they do and maybe even upload them a couple of times because, uh, you know, I, to see if uh, YouTube picks a different day. Uh, I'm not an expert on that end uh, for sure, but, um, you know, certainly test your workflow and, and try the different things out with your content. Next question. David Brady from New York, New York. Has anyone seen Jailinga? We had a virtual demo earlier this week and at first, I was skeptical, but this seems like a compelling minority report-esque way to add some wow to your virtual presence. And there is a jalinga.com link. John? There's a lot of guys on YouTube that use a piece of glass to do this. There's a guy down in San Diego, he's a professor that teaches math on this. And then they, they've got, he uses ultraviolet lights up in the screen. And so he uses fluorescent uh um, markers that really shine on screen. And, and even John Idelson has one of these small pieces of glass that he can write on. And then using OBS, they flip the screen around so the text is the right way. So easy, easy to build yourself, Dave. I'm super inquisitive to know what they're charging for this thing because I, I don't see anything there that you couldn't build yourself. Next question. Robert, we can't hear you. Hi, welcome back. From Daniel Ferguson, Thousand Oaks, California, what products can help remotely support and troubleshoot TV and AV tech needs for elderly parents? Go ahead, Alex. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something we usually tell the panelists not to do is that I thought I raised my hand, but I may not have, cause I'm very, I'm on a little laptop and I've got all this stuff laying around, but I very feel very strongly about the last question, which is that it's a horrible idea. <laughs> like it just like, stop, you need to stop doing that. Like it, 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 it's, it is driving you as a presenter. It means that you now have to sit inside of this format, get an ATEM mini, get a, you know, you know, get something you're going to use as telestration. My app is going to come out soon. The, but there's other people that have apps. There's video pencil. There's other things you can draw on. You can key your keynote over top of it over black. I really wish keynote, keynote knew how to do key fill, but that'd be <laughs> one other thing. But, but the, um, but it, it, it building a, a station that does this is so much more flexible, like so much, like I build, I keep on changing mine all the time for whatever the price I have five Mac minis stacked up to do various things, clocks and my telestrator and my apps and everything else. And it's probably less money than this thing costs. 
and it is much less trouble than this thing is. And I would run rings around them because, okay, when do I, when I want to show you an app, how, I, how do I do that? When I want to do this, this also, it is so confining for how you have to stand or sit or whatever. The camera has to be at a certain angle. The whole thing has to be there. It is, this is a dumb idea. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like I, I've, I've had time to think about it. Then I just think that there's just, if we didn't have a 10 minis and we didn't have the ability to composite, we didn't have other things to do. You'd be able to do that. And if I wasn't in a hotel, I would show you most of what they're showing, um, you know, from my home, my home kit, but I could be sitting in my office with something. And then as I want to change what I'm showing and as I want to bring in video and as I want to do all these other things, I'd be able to do it. And, and so I just, I feel like people adopting something like that is actually going to slow down our ability to evolve <laughs> our event. So I've gone from like, well, if you want to, you know, if you want to do it, okay, to um, being a little aggressive about it um, because it's really, uh, I just feel like it's, it's dumbing down events. We have to be very careful of people wanting to go back into the cave because they're scared of the, the open area. This is like, this is like cave drawings. Like, you know, it's, it's so, you know, get out of the cave, do something new. Um, but our tools to do it digitally are so much more refined. And this is created by people who want to go back to the old way because that's what they know how to do. And so I guess, sure. But I just think it's a horrible idea. Like I just think that they should learn how to do it in a modern, in a modern way. Robert. Well, and this was the old way back in the 80s on ABC7 New York. And there's a, 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 a flashback app that goes to all these places. And he's very talented at writing backwards. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so sorry, I had to... I, had to be there, I, just, I, I wasn't able to get the answer in there. And I was just like, oh my God, I, I don't even want this to... Like, I just don't want to start... I, I don't even like having the conversation anymore about it because it's just... I, I When it came out, I was interested. Like, hmm, that's interesting. And the more that I've thought about it, the, and the more I've built up my kit over the last year, um, in, in, in uh, last couple of years, I just feel like people need to use, you know, and, and the, here's the problem with that one too, is they, they start and now they're adding all these little buttons and all these little things that they could pop up. And it's, it's, you're now stuck in their interface. I have, I have a stream deck and I have all, you know, I've, I have all these little buttons that I've learned how to do. And I, I confine it, I flex it to what I want. And when we build studios for other people, we flex that and we build hardware buttons that do what we want them to do because when you have all these buttons on the interface, like on my little Telestrator app that I, that, that I have, there is no interface ever, like unless you say want to change settings. And the reason for that is so that the operator can be totally present with what they're doing. And I just think, I feel like this will be hard to learn. And then again, it just locks you to where your camera's going to be. And it locks, it, it's going to be complicated for lighting and complicated for the background. And co it complicates all kinds of things in production. Um, especially like with mine, I can show you another camera angle and then draw on that. I can take your, I can take Zoom coming from, from Zoom, bring it in and draw on that. You can't do any of those things with this piece of glass. Um, Anyway, I just, just need to say, like, I just, I just, we need to kill this, kill this idea. <laughs> so, so that's, that's all. Like, I guess we, I haven't actually had to see it in the wild, which makes me feel better, but, but, uh, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. All right. I, I think we're, it's confusing now because we, I, this is why we don't let people do what I just did, um, is that there's, uh, that now we don't know where we're at. So I'll just jump into the next question. Um, because we already, I think Laura already threw, threw it to me for that. As far as remote AV tech issues, um, one of the things you want to look at is how you're going to remotely control it. I would recommend 
the potential of, if you really want to get serious about it, is something like a Mac Mini or a PC that you can jump into from remotely. So you ought to be able to have an all, you know, any desk or Apple remote desktop, um, something in that area where you can get into it. The problem really with the iOS devices and the tvOS devices, you can't get into to change things for someone. Um, and then, you know, obviously what you want to do is try to wire it as carefully as possible and make sure that everything's robust so that if it loses power, it'll come back up into the state that it was in before. Um, so that's the big thing is making sure that what, whatever, just put, and I try to get everything into a UPS, but then I take either the, you know, I turn the UPS off and let everything just die like I lost power and turn it back on again and make sure that everything comes back up to that state. That's really where the people get into the most trouble is when they lose power or something gets unplugged and it doesn't come back to the state that it was in. Um, now they can't find their way home, you know? And so that's the thing that I would, um, you know, definitely consider. Robert, did you want to jump back in on this? Oh, no, I think, I think we got it. Alex uh, took care of that. Thank you. And at this time, I'm going to take a quick minute and remind everybody that next Saturday, our, our potential panelist meeting and our um, volunteer meeting, Monday, we're going to do another two hours of Q&A. Tuesday, Alan Hawks will be back with us. And you can get the entire schedule in the daily email. Next question. From Chad Lafarge, Columbus, Missouri, and on the backend team with Office Hours. When setting up remote contribution where your talent has a bad connection, what are your options to secure usable internet and make the set look homey? Go ahead, Alex. Yep, so the... Um, uh, the there's, that's two problems. <laughs> so one is to make the, to get the internet. Uh, if, if you, you know, sometimes you can actually call um, the internet provider if you have enough time and give the, and see if you can't pay for it to be increased. Um, incre we've actually upgraded someone for a year so that we could have it for a day. <laughs> so, so, cause it wasn't, and, and, and we did one where we actually called Comcast and got them to upgrade their bandwidth, but it turned out to be less money for them. You know, so we, you know, so it was a weird, you know, cause, cause if you call and say, Hey, I don't want to use this service or I'm on, a, I'm not happy with my service. If you're not in contract with, with your internet service provider, you know, they've basically been taking as much advantage of you as possible. <laughs> so, so the big ones, not the little ones like Sonic, Sonic is a good one. Um, you know, but, but I think most of them are trying to get, of course, the highest margin they can out of every user. And so they charge you with the going radius and the rate going rate is going down. And so what happens is if you call when you're out of contract, they want to keep you in contract. They'll do almost anything to keep you in contract. And so what you will get you back into a contract for two years. So if you're willing to sign up for two years, the last time we called, we went from, we, we, our bill went down by about $30 and became twice as fast. Um, so oftentimes calling in will help uh, to, to do that. The other thing that we can do, of course, is make sure nothing else is on the network. Uh, make sure that the computer is not doing anything else. Make sure that they're on a hard line, especially when someone has low internet speeds, you want to get them on a hard line because the Wi-Fi, uh, all the issues with Wi-Fi do get worse. So make sure that everything else is off the network. Make sure that everything else is, that they're plugged into Ethernet. After that, we start to go, well, like, depending on who the person is, 
We've done everything from um, adding, we've done point to points. So these are microwave dishes that get us somewhere else that there is bandwidth. Uh, we've also even put sat, sat trucks outside <laughs> to, to, to get that person back to what we need. So there's a, you can keep on ratcheting up what's possible at people's houses, um, depending on, on how much money you have. All right, thanks, Alex. Let's go ahead to the next question. From Craig McFarland, Boston, Massachusetts, connecting disconnecting audio devices like mics and headsets to a Mac can cause auto pause or interrupt Zoom teams or media playing. What is a workaround? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, generally to keep everything plugged in. <laughs> so, so you try not to unplug things, um, you know, so, so, um, you know, getting some kind of mixer, I'm going to mix pre three, but getting some kind of mixer that everything kind of runs through or something there. But I try during a, during something, I try to not um, plug and unplug things uh, as much as possible. So you really want to find a way that you're either mixing it in your computer um, or you're mixing it in a piece of hardware, uh, but you're not, you're not doing something that requires you to unplug and plug things back in. Thanks, Alex. Let's go ahead to the next question. Talak Lopez Waterman wants to know, has anyone had experience with AI machine learning noise reduction feature in Adobe Lightroom? I heard from a favorite photographer of mine that it's mind-blowing. They like to shoot the blue fairies in the Smoky Mountains. Go ahead, Robert. And I say, yes, I have experienced this. I'm a still photographer. So sometimes I do some low light uh, bar or state in stage photography, which sometimes the, the light on stage varies tremendously. And so I'm able to and pull out the noise tremendously. It does tend to make it a little softer in those areas, but it is, it's pretty amazing. All right, thanks. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I'm very curious about blue fireflies um, in uh, what they what blue fireflies look like, but they would be hard to shoot, I imagine, because of the blue record tends to be not as good either. So it'd be really interesting. The noise reduction has been getting better and better for years. I mean, so we've been using different versions of noise reduction and it, when it works, it is absolutely mind blowing. And I think it's going to keep on getting better to, you know, and we're seeing that it happens all the time in our phones. We just don't, it doesn't even show it to us, you know, so the, the, um, the, the machine learning that's in uh, the, the algorithms, both in Google phones, as well as Apple's phones and Samsung phones, they're doing this noise reduction as you take the photo in real time. It just, it just comes in that way. Um, so you're going to, you know, so some of it's happening for us already, um, but some of it's going to keep on becoming better and better. You can tell the difference, by the, by the way, if on an iPhone, if you shoot the 48 megapixel raw on an iPhone 14, you'll see what the actual grain is <laughs> because it's not processing that; it's just giving it to you. Um, and then if you shoot if you shoot regular in a, in a regular format, you'll suddenly see that grain go back in. And some of that grain has gotten rid of because it takes that 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 image and scales it down. And then some of it's because it, it usually does a noise reduction pass and then scales it down. And that's what that's why a lot of your low light stuff looks so smooth. Yeah, and if, uh, if you want a fun little story on kind of AI and in handling uh, low light images, uh, do some searching for 
about the moon. I don't remember what the camera was or or what the story was, but uh, somebody did some tests where they put it. It was a Samsung. (laughs) It was a Samsung. They wanted to make it look like you were able to take take the moon. So they they the moon never changes, you know, based on what you see. So what it did is it it would just paste the moon over top of of your image, and it would figure out you know where what the you know the drop off was. So it didn't it you know it looked natural, but it was but it was literally. I'm sorry, I thought it was the funniest thing. But it's literally pasting a picture over the moon. And and for a while people had no idea. They're like, this this is amazing. It shoots so well, but it's not it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go ahead, Robert. Uh, just following up with Alex, when um, the iPhone processes and denoises, isn't it taking images uh, frames from either side of it and kind of interpolating in between? I, I think it does. Um so this is something that we did, the way we took grain out in the old days, in the very old days, the 90s, is what you would do is like, so we have a, let's say we have a background plate. We don't want any grain in the background plate. We want to add that grain back in so that it matches the whatever compositing that we're doing. And so what we would do is we would take, I think it was 10 images of, so we, and usually it wasn't taking 10 images. They're shooting a background plate and they hand us just a sequence of 10 of the frames, the 24 frames a second. So it's basically a little less than half a second of frames. We would get those scanned and sent to us. And then what we would do is we would stack them, we image, do these image stacking. We make sure that they're, there's sometimes a little bit of gate weave. So we'd have to, you know, align them perfectly. And then you would, um, you set the, the one above at 50%, then 25%, then 12.5%, then 6.25%, then uh, 3.625%, then 1.8, something, you know, like, and you'd keep on doing halves all the way up. And what you'd end up doing is ended, you would, what that would do is the only thing different between all those plates was the grain. And so it would smooth that out. And so I think that the Apple may be doing something similar to that and some other companies as well. Would you take this little because you're, because you're now grabbing all those? It grabs a whole bunch of frames, and then it does that. That's one of the processes it can use to do uh, grain removal. All right, let's go ahead to the next question from Cindy Drozda, Erie, Colorado. I use Lumix Tether app to control focus on my Panasonic G9. Works great on my MSI laptop. On the Dell laptop, when I try to open the live view, the app quits. A warning comes up saying there was an internal problem connecting the camera. Any ideas? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, the first thing I would do is make sure that your that the that the Windows version and the driver versions for all of your all the apps that are being all the the subsystems, the drivers that are exactly the same. So they may have slightly different drivers or they one may be a, ahead of the other one. So and it could we don't know which one. It could be the older version works better and not, not the newer version. So make sure that both of those OSs are identical and, and all of their drivers are identical. Uh, I think that that's probably the most likely problem. Or if it's a Bluetooth app, then you got to make sure I would test both of them to see if they're both connecting properly to Bluetooth. It could be an issue that the Dell isn't doing that for properly for some reason. All right, let's go ahead to the next question. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What's the best way to grab a YouTube clip? Go ahead, Alex. 
in my opinion, on a Mac is Downy. Downy 4 is what I use for those kinds of things. I don't try to grab the clip. I just grab the whole the whole file. <laughs> so if I need to pull something off of YouTube, you take the URL, you put it into Downy, it just downloads the highest quality version that's available. Now I can take it into my editing app and I can figure out what I need out of that to, to grab. So um, I haven't, you know, you can also do, obviously on a Mac, do screen captures. If you have some kind of screen capturing software on the PC, you could do that as well. But those are the, that's the, that's what I have found to be the easiest. The trying to get through it and trying to do screen captures and trying to figure it out has been, I just gave up. And so I just used Downey to pull the whole thing off and then I edit it out in, in my editor of choice. Go ahead, Laura. Something I learned in the office hours community, Alex, is that you can sometimes use VLC. It's not as a guarantee you're going to get it if you, if you use VLC, but still yeah, about 90% of the time I can get them with VLC. Yeah, it's it it's really that kind of you know uh, VLC is free, um, so th th that's a that's a good that's a good thing for me. Um, it's just a measurement of time, you know. And you'll find that a lot of my solutions have to do with how long is this going to take me to do. In my, you know, I'm I'm very stingy. Most people are either stingy about time or stingy about money. And I'm super stingy about time, <laughs> so, so I, you know, and, and and so that's usually when I when I give you a, a solution, it's usually me thinking, how long is this going to take me to do, or how much fiddling is there going to be uh, in my own time to to make that happen? And I find that VLC is a little fiddly. Uh, I definitely have it, I use it, but I don't try to do anything other than open things up, you know, to see see what they're doing. All right, let's go ahead to the next question. To log Lopez Waterman, who's traveling, is the LiveU the only company that offers this similar service? I did not want to ask this on Thursday, but was curious. And uh, we had a terrific second hour with the LiveU folks on Thursday. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I was, we had the CTO of LiveU on, on the show. I was, I was uh, kind of a, you know, that, that's we're hoping to see more of those kinds of. But, but it's one thing to bring an engineer on or a technical person. It's another thing to bring the chief technical officer of the company on. So that was a really, uh, uh, really great um, experience. I would definitely ch check it out because he really got into how these transports work and how this, you know, how these pieces, you know, come together. Um, and uh, so anyway, he uh, there are other ones, DeGero, uh, TVU. Uh, those are all, those are both uh, competing services. Teradek has its own bonding solution. Uh, so there's there's a variety of them. I will say that I've used almost all of them, and they're not as good as LiveView. That's why we use a LiveView. That's why we partnered with them. That's why we, you know, is because um, I because I've used all the other ones <laughs> for for this as a straight video. Um, you know, you know. SDI on the one side, SDI on the other side. It's going to go in, it's going to go out. As, as for that kind of solution, there's you know four or five different solutions um, that that can that can do it. And I just haven't found one that performed better uh, than the Live View. And I used to uh, lease two Live Views for about a decade, um, so that we used all over the world. So it's it's uh, I'm, I have a lot of experience with that one. But I also had a Degero, and we've used TVUs in the past, and all of them have been a little quirky. <laughs> not, not as in not stable. So, so that I would, I would stick with the live view if it was my choice. All right, let's go ahead to the next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. What are the pros and cons of a Chrome box about $500 on Amazon? Alex. And I am, is the Chrome box an actual, like, you know, it's a PC, right? It's, or not a PC. It's gotta it's be a, a desktop. It's like a little desktop for $500. I, I guess I would be at $300. 
the melees and there's lots of little PCs at a hundred dollars. There's pies, but once you hit five hundred dollars, you buy a Mac. Like in my opinion, like you buy a Mac, and then you buy Macs for a while, and then you get to a point where you go, oh, now I need. Re-. I was talking. I was having a conversation uh, uh, with um, uh, some PC manufacturers, and there there is definitely a world where the Mac is not going to do what we need it to do. And so there are specialty to, specialty reasons. And then there's power reasons. There are just, you can build a PC that is more powerful than the most powerful Mac out there, you know, bottom line. And so there are reasons to do that. Um, when you want tons and tons of cores for graphics cards, you know, that kind of thing, you are, um, there's a, there's a place for buying PCs at that point. I bought lots of them to do that kind of thing. Um, and, and there's also specialty reasons to do it. I would never buy a Chromebook or a Chromebox. <laughs> it's just my, my kids, uh, you get, and, and the reason that I wouldn't buy it is because my kids have Chromebooks for school and they have learned to hate them. Like just hate those, those computers. Um, they're, they're highly manageable. Um, they're only on the, you know, they, they're more cloud oriented, um, but they, they limit all the services that are there. I mean, you just don't have drivers for a lot of things. And so you don't have all the things that you need. And I just don't think it's a, I mean, I think that it, you know, I, I can see how schools do it, uh, kind of, um, you know, the, uh, but I, but I, you know, cause it's, it, it, again, it's just a really non-creative experience <laughs> you know, to, to have those Chromebooks. And so, and I've learned a new, as a person who has to support them when a little bit here and there, I, I've, I've grown a new, new dislike for the Chromebook systems. Um, I have to admit, I love a lot of things that Google does, um, but this is definitely not one of them. All right, let's go ahead to the next question. Troc Lopez Waterman writes, is there a tendency with architectural lighting control systems like Paradigm and Crestron to lock out the end user from making changes once your expensive consultant leaves? Is his part of the future in architecture? And not that I'm bitter. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Crestron definitely lets you lock it out and, and, and there's, there's, there are valid reasons to do that and invalid reasons to do that. So the valid reason to do that is that if you don't lock the users out, they'll do crazy things. Like they'll decide they're going to plug something new in or they can move something around and they think, and then it doesn't work and then they blame you. <laughs> like as a, so as a, as an integrator, I've done this. I've built things without the Crestron and then I come and they're like, they're angry and I have to come fix it and they don't want to pay for anything to be fixed. They, they, they feel like it's my fault. And then I open up the back of it and they've plugged a whole bunch of new things in and they've done a whole bunch of other and they've got another little button that does something else. And so, the, so if you're accountable for it for X amount of time, a lot of times you want to lock people out of it so that they, we learned to lock all of our cabinets that we built for people because, and they thought it was so that we would have, they'd have to call us and pay us to, to work on it. But it was just like, don't break it. <laughs> you know, like, just don't break it. So, so I think that, <clears throat> that's the valid reason. Obviously, the invalid reason is if you want to, um, you know, you want to get paid every time it gets upgraded. But I really think, to be fair, I think most integrators lock people out to keep them to, to protect them from themselves. Um, now, with Plalock, he's technical enough that he could probably do it better than the integrator if, if left to you know build something more creative. But not everyone's Plalock, <laughs> so so I think that I think there's a lot of people that think that they know better and then they screw it up and now it's broken and now it's in a weird state and then they do something else and suddenly you end up you know especially because you weren't the one that did it. You, as an integrator, you might show up and it's like 
what could have been a 15 minute fix to do move something for them is now a day of work or two days of work of unwinding like what they un, what they or winding back up what they unwound so so i don't i don't know if it's necessarily always the case i would say that you know i think restaurants are amazing when they're locked down and as soon as you open them up and let people change them they are a nightmare like they're just the the whole system is built around locking people out um, so that so that it stays stable, but a restaurant because now you have all these buttons that don't do what you, they say they we're going to do anymore. They don't they're not operative and they're not. It's really easy to break a, a restaurant system. Now, a system like Universe is a lot more uh, flexible, you know. In 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 the case of being able to move things around without breaking it, but but I will say when restaurant runs really well and it's locked down and it works, it's amazing. But it's often not amazing. <laughs> because someone changed something that didn't that wasn't part of the original plan. Okay, let's go to the next question. From Chad Lafarge, Columbia, Missouri, looking back on the office hour of Space Rock Space Rocket launch event. That was an amazing project. John, where are you on the next Garage Rocketeers launch event? Go ahead, John. So this is this is the 1961 Estes Nova payloader. See this clear section here? We're taking this rocket and we're upsizing it by a factor of 12. And we lost one of our sponsors. And so we're looking for new sponsors. Uh, we hope to launch this in March, but we're still doing, uh, there's a launch in September, which is the Nationals. Um, a bunch of us are going out for that. And then October here in Vegas, and then March will be the next event that we hope we have this thing built. And it's a big rocket. It's 20 feet tall. It's 450 pounds. And then we're going to put, I've got the DRS uh, Insta360 camera to go in the center of the clear um, polycarbonate tube for a 360 degree view. So that's the plan. Wow. Very exciting. Let's go ahead to the next question. Ronnie Hofsey from Norway asks, I need a small portable speaker in a fly pack kit that is already too big. Speakers will be used as monitors inside a meeting room for cross-mixed foldback for each end of the room. Compact, good sound and light. Which one should I purchase? The trifecta. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to actually hope that, that someone in our... Uh... That so one of our viewers will put it. I just can't think of the. I'm in my hotel room and I have a speaker and I just can't picture what, what brand it is um, that, 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 that we use. But we have a couple of these little production speakers. A lot of them are small. A couple of things that are usually um, we usually get ones that are self-powered, um, so that that all you have to do is run um, an ether or not an Ethernet, but a um, uh, XLR to them, and so they can be self-powered. I don't you know what you want to avoid is having something. And, um, you have to decide whether you want to be able to attenuate that that um, signal at the speaker. Usually they have a little attenuation there, which works well. You just have to make sure that you're normalizing that. Um, and then, um, but there's, you know, there's a variety of different production speakers. KRK makes some, uh, obviously Genelec makes some that are all a little, you know, small. But there's some less expensive ones that I just, without being in my office, I can't think of the brand name. I don't know if someone looks at the... At the uh, if someone pokes it in there because I, I I think a lot of us use all the same ones. <laughs> so Fostec anyway, sixty three hundred. Yeah, the Fostec. That's it. So that's the the uh, look at Fostec. They they make uh, um, they make great small speakers. Very good. Let's go ahead to the next question. 
from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles and on the back end crew. When making a decision to buy a piece of gear, is there a formula for you to use, like watching YouTube reviews or asking in support groups? Go ahead, Alex. You know, I, I really try to, if, if it's really expensive, um, I try to use it somewhere or rent it. Like, so sometimes I rent lenses or I rent other things to see if like, is this really going to work? You know, and, and the other thing though that I also do is I, uh, I do pay attention to the return policies of wherever I'm buying it from. So is this a, uh, you know, if it's Amazon or B&H, they're pretty flexible about being able to send things back if they didn't work. Um, I, I still am then looking at obviously the reviews and the hardest part about reviews is I have to, I'm looking for very specific things like with when I'm buying something, you know, what is it signal to noise ratio or how big is the, the camera chip and can you do these? And it's asking the right questions and looking, you know, I'm skimming through the reviews. I don't really care about that person's opinion, but what I'm looking for are certain specs that I think are going to be important that are, it's going to get it into the ballpark that I think it's worth the, at least testing. Yeah, and, and I, I love that this came up here. I was having a conversation with my neighbor yesterday about working on cars and how you know younger generations are just assuming the knowledge is out there, waiting for them to pull up. You know, so they pop the hood, unplug the wires, then they go to YouTube and say, "Okay, where you know where do I plug this back in, or which piece do I replace?" And um, you know, I think we're seeing that knowledge base um, or the the assumption of that. I'm not saying that's good or bad. Um, but it's certainly interesting that the, the, the wealth of knowledge that we have access to um, is, uh, is sizable and translating that knowledge, just like Alex just said, you know, how do, how do we get to the point where we have to ultimately make that decision ourselves by, you know, buying that piece of gear, renting it, something like that, so we can put our hands on it and try it out or try, try three or four pieces. But it, but it is interesting to watch um, you know, a, a gener generation of folks coming up that just assume the knowledge is out there. They go to Amazon, sort by review, and uh, you know, and, and that's what they buy and assume that it's the best just because it has has the most reviews. So, uh, go ahead, Robert. Well, in Mukana Tech, uh, Mickey offers up that he finds the majority of reviews on YouTube are garbage made by people who do not know what they're talking about. So that's a pretty yeah. strong opinion there. <laughs> and, 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 and I would say spot on, spot on. Like, like I just, it's really hard to watch those reviews. And he suggests he primarily relies on firsthand experience of the hardware to make acquisition decisions, along with information from production partners. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, same for Amazon reviews, right? It, it takes some knowledge to go and read those and, and filter out the ones that are useless. And, you, uh, you know, Tim, I, I, the thing that ruined me for Amazon, I still do it. I still look at what people review, but I look for what they're complaining about um, specifically, like it didn't last, it broke, it did it, you know, like so on and so forth. I do pay, I'm more brand conscious actually on Amazon because I'm afraid of getting some knockoff or, or something that isn't really going to work. But one of the things that happened was I had a chair, it was a bike, a stationary bike I got, and I didn't like it. And I reviewed it that way and said, I don't like it. This is what's wrong with it. You know, this is why it doesn't work. And I got a, uh, um, I got an email from the company that sells it saying, please take that down. We'll give you $50, a $50 Amazon gift certificate to take down that review. And it really, and I wouldn't do it. Like I was like, no, I'm not going like, to take money to take down my review. Um, anyway, I don't know why I'm so 
you know, idealistic about a review, but I was like, the entire system falls apart if people start doing that. And I realized, oh, people are doing that. Like, you know, you're right. People are writing a bad review. And then, you know, especially smaller companies, um, overseas are, you know, one, they know that that review, like if I see something that has two stars on Amazon, I'm not going to buy it, you know, like, and so, um, so the, uh, unless I really know that that's what I want, um, I'm looking for four and a half stars or higher on Amazon. Typically, if I'm, if it's something I don't know. And so I can see that they're, but then I realize I don't even know if that's like after that in interaction, I was like, I don't even know if that's, I don't even know if that means anything anymore <laughs> because it's because they're paying people to take those down. Now, of course, if you report them, you know, Amazon takes that seriously, but it is a real, real issue. Yeah, I agreed. You know, and all the talk of AI lately, you know, how many <clears throat> we, we, we see automated uh, reviews already posted. I think AI is going to get better at posting those reviews and we're, we're just not going to know. Um, you know, which, which ones to trust. Uh, I think there's still some intelligence there that we can read through and, and uh, you know, hopefully see which ones are, are generated. But, um, but I feel like those will just, those, those will get harder and harder to, to translate. Yeah, I think that being able to verify who it is and that they're actually a person and that they actually bought the product and they actually are a trusted, you know, individual within that community um, I think those are the kind of things that are going to have to happen much more aggressively over time to just know that we can trust what we see. Right. And very much like, uh, you know, YouTube, if you're, if you have a reviewer, you know, and trust, uh, you know, you'll, you'll know their review or at least you'll know their, their slant, right? Or I shouldn't say right. their slant, but their angle, you know, what, why is it they reviewed it that way? You know, is do they have a, uh, you know, something against that brand or that type of product. Um, so at least, you know, know where they're coming from when they're, when they're giving that review. So. Yep. hundred percent. Interesting conversation. Let's go ahead to the next question. John Fisher from Oklahoma city, Oklahoma. Will switching a sure MV seven from USB to XLR via Scarlett to I2 net net any benefits. Go ahead, Alex. It, uh, it can. Um, so by switching to some, some kind of preamp, uh, you, the, the USB connection can be just a little bit low depending on what application you're using for the ingest. So the MV7 might not be quite loud enough depending on how you use the mic. So putting it into a preamp um, is go potentially going to be able to amplify that a little bit more and you'll get a, you get a louder signal. That's the big advantage. The disadvantage of the Scarlett 2i2 is that Lots of things can go wrong <laughs> with, that, with that interface. I, I've said it before and on some of these shows that I have spent more time teching that specific thing remotely, talking someone through why I can't get audio than any other device that I've ever seen in this kind of work. Um, so that is a, it's, it, these, I have a lot of Scarlet stuff that I love. I mean, um, I have a lot of focus right tools that I really enjoy, but the Scarlet brand itself, um, I think is uh, significantly less stable than the rest of their, their line. All right, let's go ahead to the next question. Daniel Ferguson from Thousand Oaks, California, recently upgraded to Frontier 2 gig fiber internet. Wow. Purchased the new wired Eero POE wired gateway to get 2 gig to my wired network. What are some other fiber network gateway options people are using. Go ahead, Alex. It just depends on the scale that you want to go in at this point. Um, by the way, congratulations. I'm jealous and I'm hoping that uh, let us know 
whether you're actually getting two gigs or if you're getting 1.8 or 1.9, anywhere over one gig uh, is pretty exciting. Um, Frontier just finished tearing up our, our road that's outside of my house. So I'm very positive that, that, that they, they put little things on our on our door <laughs> that they're coming. So all of us are, are the, all the neighbors are all talking about having real bandwidth. Um, anyway, so uh, so I think that hopefully there's I, I get pings when I talk about Frontier, but people don't like it. So I'm really curious about whether you like it um, in your in your uh, use case. Um, the ubiquity is what a lot of people use at home. So I have a friend who like at our office, we use Meraki's from Cisco, which are amazing and really easy. But um, the person that I know that, that used the most Meraki's I've ever seen for his own home used ubiquity because he's like, I can't afford the Meraki's. <laughs> so, he, so, he, so he uses the uh, ubiquity line and he's really happy with it. So that's, we get back to who you talk to to purchase it. That's a person that knows 10 times what I know about networking. Um, and that's what he chose for his house. And so uh, Ubiquity has a lot of great, uh, a great line of, of tools. Netgear also has some good lines, especially if you're hoping to do any kind of, you know, the, I think it's the 52 series, 5200 series is the, so the 42 or 5200 is the AV line for um, uh, 4250s. Is that right? I, I, off the top of my head. Um, is a, but those are, um, so Netgear can have, you can have some fairly good ones. Um, if you're looking for the actual gateway to the internet, uh, I don't know how that modem works with the fiber coming in. So it, it, you have to just make sure that it's, it's compatible. If you're looking for routers that are going to manage your house, uh, Ubiquity Dream Machines are very popular within this community. Uh, a lot of people um, like them. They're a little bit more expensive, but that's going to give you a lot of flexibility to really manage your network. Um, I keep on putting it off. I have an old, I have an old, um, an older network that I'm very unhappy with. <laughs> so, so I'm, it kind of works in the house. And, uh, uh, this fall I'll be upgrading to, um, uh, dream machine. And it was, it's just been hard to get one. Uh, I think the, the supply line is starting, the supply is starting to go down, but I'm probably going to put a, uh, replace what I have right now with the ubiquity system, uh, over the next, uh, two months. All right. Very good. Let's go ahead to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, a BBC test pattern referenced a one kilohertz G lights tone at minus 18 dBU instead of the traditional tone at zero dBFS. Is the G lights, G lits tone mostly used in the UK, Europe versus the conventional tones used in the USA? Go ahead, Alex. I think the tones are the same. Uh, they're all usually one one K there. And I think that the negative 18, I think that it is, it ends up evening out there, but I'm not sure that with the United States and other countries, that number can be negative 16, negative 18, negative 20. Um, it depends on where you're at. Negative 18 is probably the most popular, but we've definitely seen people decide they're going to peg negative 20 or negative. It's not, a, they're not, it's how you're referencing your equipment. The important thing is that all the, the equipment's referenced to the same number. So, it, you know, the exact number is not as important as uh, that everything is seeing the same thing when they're set up that way. Um, so, uh, so, but we've seen it range between negative 16 and negative 20. Very good. Okay, let's go ahead to the next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, when using a fiber to SDI multiplexer, eight SDI over one fiber strand, is this a better solution than just running a TAC-12 with SDI converters? Go ahead, Alex. On each. 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of times we run, uh, it's, I don't know if it's less expensive, but a lot of times I'll tend to run pack 12s because I have, it's so much easier for me to manage. So, so I just want to run tack 12 and oftentimes I use two tack 12s. And so I'd take one tack 12 coming to, to the location, to a central location, another one going another way. And this is so that if someone shuts a door, steps on it, cuts it, whatever, I've got a backup that's already in place and I can get a lot of stuff and it's easier for me to, to get rid of later. So I don't know if it's more expensive or less expensive, um, but I but you can put a lot more if you if you get this eight SDI over um, if, and you're talking about a oh this is a muxer right this is the hold on let me um, and I apologize I this one came up and I'm in a, my kit is not as good when I'm on the road of looking at stuff here this is a multi uh, a multiplexer that is um, that is going so what this does is this will. This multiplexer, there's a couple of these. This is not the one I've used in the past. I use one that's made by, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's called a yellow brick. Um, and uh, so the multi, these multiplexers, what they do is they put different HD-SDI signals on different wavelengths. Um, so those wavelengths will, you know, and, and so instead of using a TAC-12, you're using, you're, they're actually putting all the videos on a separate wavelength that they're passing through the system. The challenge with that is specifically that the um, uh, with the with that multiplex is that some of those wavelengths can make hard curves and some of them can't. <laughs> so, so you might you might have some cameras that work and some cameras that don't, depending on the wavelength that they're that they're sitting on. And so that's one challenge if it starts to get crowded and eight starts to get crowded. Um, so you can and it's efficient. I would still run TAC twelve because I would rather have all my cameras coming in. You know, so if something breaks, I'll usually want to be the whole thing. Um, but we have used them to, you know, grab four. I've never, I've not used four signals, uh, uh, um, four, uh, signals. I've, I've, the most I've ever done is four. I don't do eight. Um, we, there are Broman makes one that's called, um, that does an eight. I can't think of what it is, but it, it makes one that's an eight channel version, but I've never gone up to that because I was too concerned about putting that many eggs into that basket. Thank you, Alex. Let's go ahead to the next question. And we can't hear you, Robert. Welcome back. Which is uh, from JJ McKenna, San Rafael, California, which is the most affordable Panasonic PTZ camera rental house in the Bay Area, looking for a couple UE 150s. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so I mean, the most typical place you get you get the the um, the one fifties would be VER. VER is going to be they have them in stock, <laughs> you know, so uh, that's the I don't know if they're the most cost effective way to do it, um, but they are the um, but they're the most ubiquitous across the country and definitely in the, here. The other place that if I was looking at renting them that I'd probably talk to is. Um, uh, Mountain View staging, MV staging. Um, they, I know they have a lot of those as well. They're not a typical rental house, um, so I think that you'd, you'd have to see if that's something that you can figure out with them. But they, they have they have a warehouse full of gear, um, and and we have been able to rent stuff from them in the past. Um, but I have a closer relationship with them, so it, it may not be. I don't know what they're how they handle uh, other other um, uh, calls. Uh, the other one that may have them, but they're really much more film, is a company called, or is a rental house called Videofax. Um, Videofax is much more um, oriented around. Uh, uh, Videofax is much more oriented around film, so I don't know if they have any of the one fifties. 
Um, but, but typically every, when I've needed 150s, we've almost always gone to the ER. So that's, that's, the, that's the one I know the most for the corporate style rental. Very good. Let's go ahead to the next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia is here. I am using my studio setup for the first time in about 30 days, but there is no sound in Zoom today for me. I have restarted, but still no audio in Zoom. I am only hearing by the iPhone. All right. And uh, we have no hands, Rail. We do have it. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. So I, I don't, I, 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 um, it would, you know, you'd have to kind of walk through your entire uh, pipeline there. So um, the, uh, um, yeah, I don't, the, you'd have to look through it because if you're not getting audio from Zoom, first thing you do is restart the computer. <laughs> Just make sure that something hasn't been set up. When in doubt, restart the computer to make sure that it's not coming up in some state. What do you have plugged in? Are you using a mixed pre? Do you have any kind of external thing? Are you, can you, if you take, unplug everything, do you get it out of the speakers? So, you know, try to go through the most simple things to see. Zoom has a, um, Zoom has a test. Uh, if you open up in the audio section, you can hit a test thing that just tests the speaker. And so you want to keep on, does that work? Because the, why that's important is, is that you want to get to the simplest thing and just make that work first and then start adding anything else on top of that and figure out where it's breaking. But the first thing is to make sure that you're in a base state. It's, it's restarted. It doesn't have anything plugged into it except power. And you're and you're slowly and you, does it work there? And, and make sure that it's set to speakers is the output. Make sure it works there. Then you know, and you just keep on doing that. Do that, and if you still are having trouble, come back to us tomorrow. All right. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that sorts itself out. We need Tony Mobley on the air. So yes. All right. Let's go ahead to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, wants to do some shopping. What are the best tech deals at Costco? Go ahead, Alex. I think it depends on the day. <laughs> the best deal on Costco uh, in the past was uh, the um, uh, they had they had Mac Studios there for like fifteen hundred dollars. They had Mac Minis for almost nothing. Um, you know, so there was uh, it, you have to kind of you have to look at it. The the most important thing about Costco is to know what you're looking at. What is the outside world price? Um, and are any features been taken out? Sometimes it's like, it looks like the same TV, but it's not exactly the same TV <laughs> that they're getting. And so you have to be very careful of, like I've noticed that if I do research, it'll be like, it'll be a, a 22 QXL, but theirs is a 22 QXH. And then you go, oh, okay. So like, what did they take out of that TV um, to make it so much less expensive? So make sure that you're you're not looking at the what it says it is. It's not a... Uh, 72 inch or 75 inch uh, LG, look at the exact product name and then do research on that to make sure you know what it, what it's like in the outside world. Um, so the Apple stuff is usually safe if it's, if it's really cheap because Apple makes what Apple makes, but the other ones um, can be very squirrely. And so you have to pay a lot of attention. I, I will say that I haven't bought one from uh, Costco, but the TVs, I always look at the TV prices and I look at the TVs. It's a great place for me to go look at TVs. So, so I, I, I will go in there and look at, at various TVs from Vizio or LG or Sony or whatever. Um, I have uh, generally found some online deal that was better than Costco. You know, if you wait long enough with TVs, they, they go in surges. Typically TVs slowly become more expensive and, and higher featured right up until the Super Bowl. 
and then they become really inexpensive right after the Super Bowl. So usually February is the time to buy a TV. <laughs> so, so in the United States, February you buy a TV in, in the United States. February, March are good days, good good months to buy TVs because they, they do an incredible amount of marketing in January for people who want to upgrade their TV for the Super Bowl. I know it sounds crazy, but that is the that's the the you know the the pace of how everything has its has its uh, pentameter, and that is the the TV pentameter. <laughs> Good to know for sure. All right, let's go ahead to the next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. When using Ari, Venice, and Blackmagic cameras on high-end live events, such as fashion shows, the focus pullers seem to always have difficulty nailing focus. Clients love the shallow depth of field, but is there a better solution? And I think we're dealing with some moving targets on a fashion show. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I mean, the challenge really is that short depth of field. So the short depth of field, you have to have really, really good camera operators to make that actually work. So these are typically where we get that kind of camera operator is typically coming out of sports. So what you're looking for, you have to kind of figure out who to talk to. But generally, there are local camera operators that are doing the football games. They're doing a lot of those things, and they are much more skilled when it comes to focusing at a very long distance. Now, most of the cameras they use are two-thirds inch um, chips. And so they're actually, but they have such huge zoom lenses that their depth of field is often the same shortness that you would see. Um, you know, their depth of field oftentimes is measured in inches, not in feet. Um, so, so they're very, and they understand it. Now, the problem is they need all the tools that they ask for too. So, so what you're looking for, you'll be tempted to put film lenses on, but if you're looking for something, you need to have something that has the commands that they would have on there, you know, that they're used to. So, and those commands typically you want to be able to be, be adjustable so that you can flip it so that they can zoom in, zoom out the way they want to and get it all set up because they're used to a certain, their muscle memory is what you're hiring them for. Um, and so what you're not going to use is a film, a film uh, lens, a cine lens. What you're typically going to use is something like a Cabrillo. Um, the Fujinon Cabrillo lenses are really popular because you can put servos on, you know, they have their own servos and you can, you can put the motors on them. And now you can have um, the tripod based controls for focus and zoom. And so now, and, and people who know how to use those again, sports, you know, your sports folks, they'll know how to use those and they'll, and they are incredibly talented at doing that but it's a muscle memory it's not something that you read a book and learned it's not something that you take a film person and can, they can just learn it it is something that is thousands of hours of of experience and a, a point where the thought they think what they want they don't think what they need to do you know that's the you have to get to a point where someone is like a music they're basically a musician or an artist you know on these cameras and so if you're really looking for that you, you're really looking for sports uh, camera ops, um, because that is in, as challenging as many of these things. Um, and when we switched over to that for this kind of thing, uh, it was very like clients notice immediately <laughs> that suddenly everything works, you know, and, and so, um, that, that, you know, and so, and so it, again, this gets into a place where it's not now the other thing that, um, the other thing that uh, may work better are some of the Sony, again, some of the Sony autofocus stuff. We're using a lot of the Sony FR7s. Uh, their autofocus is is exceptional. Um, and uh, but the problem you get into with a with a with people going down the runway is there's lots of faces for it to find, you know. And so so it can be really challenging for for you to stay in focus in that way. So if you're doing interviews and you're doing what we're doing here, see this is this is you know how fast my autofocus works. Um, you know, in that, um, so that is a, the, these Sony lenses work really, really well in that area. Um, the other 
Other one that I would look at is the also for handheld or moving around is the new DJI uh, 440 camera. So these are these are um, kind of a um, their their own kind of camera system that D DJI has come out um, has come up with, and they have their own lidar built in. And so when you do a follow focus on that lidar, there's um, uh, there is a um, corridor digital did a review of it. You should watch the corridor digital review on YouTube because they, they kind of walk you through this, this, um, um, LIDAR, but they have LIDAR and you can sit there and say, you can see the LIDAR like a plan view of what it's focused on and where you want to put that focus as it goes through. I haven't used it for this. I haven't used it yet. Um, but it's, it, it is it from the videos that I've seen of it. It looks very compelling. It looks like an alien creature. It doesn't look like a regular camera, but it is, them rethinking how to do that. And so I think that that'd be another thing to look at that might be interesting. The other thing to finally look at is Mark Roberts has tools that will let multiple cameras follow a main camera. So now you have one sports operator, like I talked about before, that is following someone down and the other cameras, once they've been calibrated and they're using them for sports, they can all follow that, that they'll all follow that framing. They'll follow where that camera is, their motion control heads. It'll follow where that camera is so that you can get multiple angles of the same thing. It's really useful if you have a running back or a soccer player or a, you know something that you could have multiple cameras following them along. I haven't seen it outside of NAB when I'm there, um, but it, it looks like a really compelling, um, compelling solution. You know, and Alex, earlier you talked about the, the thousands of hours to learn audio uh, mixing, right? You know, this, this is a similar thing that at some point, you're going to have to have a human with that knowledge and that skill and that experience. Yeah. And I think that, again, I think that education is going to become a much bigger thing because, you know, AI is going to do a lot of the basic stuff and AI is going to cut a lot of this stuff and your, the, the, the gestation time. So we have to think about what we're doing and it, it can go a couple different ways. It either goes longer after uh, high school or we start earlier. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is that the way we solve this, you know, a thousand years ago, we didn't live as long as we live now. So you had to be useful much faster. And so we started training you much earlier. I'm not saying people, kids don't go to school, but I'm saying that in school, we may have to think about applying, teaching some of these skills. There's, it would actually be easier to teach a camera operator to be a camera operator if we started when they were six. <laughs> like, so, so like, you know, like doing their little school things and everything else, we vastly underestimate. I was, uh, I, I was driving when I was six, you know, like, you know, not cars, but tractors. Um, and so at six years old, I mean, as soon as your leg was long enough to touch, you know, get the clutch on a, you know, on a Farmall A, <laughs> you were pretty much ready to go. And, um, and so the, uh, so we were, um, you know, uh, driving very early, you know, there was no time I did. And by the time I was, you know, 10, I was very facile you know, at driving. Um, so, you know, long before 16, and then I only had to slowly learn all the rules. I might've been on the road a little earlier than 16, uh, 14, 15 years old, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. So driving to friends' houses and stuff like that was something that just became kind of normal, but we vastly underestimate, um, the human mind's ability to learn, you know, and, and this is going to be a huge thing that comes up over the next decade is that we have to start, our education system has to transform to actually being useful. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it actually has to be able to produce results. And it hasn't had to really do that. I mean, it produces minimal results um, right now, and we seem to be happy with it. But we are, you know, we are doing, you know, we're taking the most powerful time of a human being's ability to learn and, and 
teaching, filling kids time with lots of things that aren't productive, that aren't going to move them forward, they're never going to use again. And, and that's going to have to change. Like we have to get to a point where they're, the, the AI is, the way AI is going to affect this is that students will have to come out of school actually able to perform, you know, and whenever that is, and that might be lengthening their time, but it also becomes how do we make school a lot more effective than what it is? I'm not talking about being a little bit better than what they are right now. They're going to have to come out being a lot better than what, you know, um, at, at what they do. And that means that they have to start learning earlier, that we have to start being much more efficient, that we probably have to be focused. Like if students don't want to do English, we need to make sure that they can, they can read at a very high level, but we don't need to make them read literature <laughs> because they're not interested. If they don't want to do math, you know, they need to know up through about algebra, maybe a little bit of geometry, you know, in a, in a thing, but then we can just stop doing that, you know, and, 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 and we can make both of those things much with AI, we're going to be able to use AI to make those learning processes much more efficient. And so we can use the AI to make, to make that, but we should, we could pack most of what a high school student knows when they graduate for most average high school students to probably when they're about 10 or 12 years old, like we could make this a lot more efficient. They have the, the plastic ability to do that. I mean, you, you, when you look at a, a child in Europe that can speak three or four languages by the time they're eight or nine years old, you realize that our brain is way more powerful than what we're doing. And we built this system that was largely based on getting better football teams. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, um, you know, like the reason your schools are so big is because someone in the Midwest figured out that they could have better football teams um, if the schools were bigger. So when you think about socialization and having a big school and being everything, just remember, you know, our, our, our education system is wrapped around football, not around education. And so, um, and so the, uh, so we have to start really thinking about it being actual education. Again, high school and colleges have not had to be very effective up until now. As AI becomes more and more prevalent, they're going to have to get very, very good at what they do and be much more efficient um, than what they've done in the past. Great question. Just definitely generated a lot of conversation. So um, we just want to thank everybody for uh, for joining today and, and listening in, especially to the producers for providing all these questions to stimulate this great conversation. And uh, just thank you for that participation and to the crew to keep this show running and just to, uh, to keep everyone connected. We appreciate you. And, and uh, just a little bit about the... Um, the, the stats of today's show, we traveled over 85,000 miles with our questions. That's over 137,000 kilometers. Um, if you want some scale, that's more than 675 million bananas, 3.5 times, 3.4 times around the earth. So, um, we're looking forward to, uh, to the, to the rest of Earth to, uh, the coming week. So please join every day and, and, uh, uh, in a few more weeks, we're kind of figuring out the accessibility Saturdays and, and education will be back as well, too. So probably once we get through August. So uh, so thanks for that. And thanks, everybody, for joining. John, there's a mini sphere right outside my hotel in Burbank. It's, it's like the sphere, except it's tiny. It's a tiny sphere. It is. It's 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 an MSG sphere, and it's it's uh, it is um, maybe forty feet high. You know, so it's like this like miniature version. They use it to show people what the sphere does and to test things and do R and D in Burbank. And and I I've heard about it, and then I looked out my hotel room, and I was like, there it is. It's right near the airport at a uh, Burbank Airport. There's the it's the mini sphere. 
can't wait to see the real one. Wow. Yeah. Like a mini Statue of Liberty now. You're going to take that on the <laughs> Exactly. It's like the one that you'd see in Vegas. I think around the other direction, Vegas always has miniature versions of stuff, like the miniature like Eiffel Tower and the miniature whatever. 